0: So, today's reading is James 4 and 5. Um, Apparently, when we set out to do discipleship 180, the goal was to go all the way to the end of the year. I apparently miscalculated, and it ends Friday. So, uh, if you have been trekking along with us, uh, congratulations. Uh, Tomorrow, you'll read Revelation 4 and 5, and Friday, you'll read Revelation 21 and 22. So, 4 and 5 are obviously my favorite chapters of the Bible, particularly chapter 5. So, you're going to read about... uh, Worshiping Christ as Creator, Chapter 4, Redeemer, Chapter 5. So uh, if you missed all the metaphors and the imagery, it's okay. Get the main point. Jesus is worthy of worship as Creator and Redeemer. And then Friday we'll look at Revelation 21 and 22 about um, um, the, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and then you can take your book and say, I have read through the meta-narrative of the Bible in just a few months. And it's a real achievement. Hopefully it's been a blessing to you. Uh, time in Sunday school, Sunday evening, and uh, what we've been doing on Wednesday nights. So hopefully uh, reading it as a community has helped each of us to read it as an individual. That's the goal. Maybe in a few years we'll do something like it again. Um, but uh, so we'll start back with our regular programming after this week. But uh, James 4 and 5. Um uh, James is one of my favorite books in New Testament. We were actually, when we were in high school, we were going to name our son Elijah James. Um, we eventually changed that when we finally had our son. But um, we had a little sugar baby that man had to carry around. And we had a little birth certificate. We named Elijah James after this book. Um, I still remember where I was when, I, when this chapter four really hit me. I was reading, I wish Brother Ed was here, I was reading a Gideon Bible in a hotel uh, I was on a trip with uh, Manda's family. We weren't married, so I had to stay in my own room. And uh, I, for- I had already read through everything I brought to read. So I just grabbed my Gideon Bible and uh, landed here. Uh, and uh, it just really stuck out to me. Even in the King James, right? This, this millennial was able to really... And ever since, I've loved this chapter. So let's start chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, now it's already <laughs> practical, isn't it, right? James is the most practical book of the New Testament. It's the closest that we get in the New Testament to the book of Proverbs. It's not deeply theological. Um, I took a New Testament theology class, and when we came to James. It was, very, it was a very short discussion, right? We spent six weeks on Paul, six minutes on James, essentially, okay? Uh, well, he spent a whole time. He took one word out of James. He spent an hour on it, right? Like, Like, Let's go, Hoss. All right, we can move on to other things. You know, We get it, okay? But uh, for the most part, it's not a deeply theological book. There, there are some theological issues in it, particularly with what he says about justification by faith alone in chapter 3. But for the most very practical book, chapter 1 opens up. He's talking about uh, endurance through suffering and praying for wisdom. Uh, here, uh, he, he's, he's, uh, chapter 5, he'll talk about prayer um, and, uh, uh, and everything in between. But here, I think he's asking the question we all want answers. Why can't we not get along? Every relationship you've ever had, small or large, marriage, family, outlaws, co-workers, neighbors, strangers at Walmarts, a church, a big corporation, small family-owned business, the ball field of uh, people you, you, you hang out with. Every relationship, there will be conflict. Across the board, there is no one who's ever had a relationship where there wasn't conflict. Always is. Why can't we just get along? Now, you and I know we could solve all the world's problems, essentially all the world's problems in an instant. Get over yourself would be a good start, right? I mean, you you think most of the problems, like, you you ever watch the news? You think... Well, that's a problem. I can, fi- can, I, can I fix one of the problems recently? Right now we're blaming left and right for an attack on the Speaker of the House's husband. Here, Can I give you a solution to that? Don't attack people with hammers. Don't attack people. Period. I would say we can take it a step farther. Don't attack people, right? <laughs> right? Problem solved. You don't have to throw out left, right, Republican, Democrat. Like, I vote for... Choose a better way to resolve conflict, okay? <laughs> right? You can solve most of the world's problems, right? Pretty easily. But why don't we? I love how he opens up here. What is the source of your conflict? Now remember, James is writing not to pagans. He's not writing an op-ed piece on Fox News. He's writing to the church. And it's very likely James is the earliest, the first book written in the New Testament. It's either James or Galatians. And that comes down to how you, how you map Paul's first missionary journey. Did Is it the, the northern trip or the southern trip? None of that matters. You don't care about it. So if it's not the first, it's the second. So it's really, really early. And already Christians aren't getting along. I've done the history of this church. I'm officially the, the, uh, 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 the, the his, historian expert here at East for Baptist Church. Can I give you some insight? It took like three days for this church to, to have a disagreement over something, okay? <laughs> I mean, it did not take long, and I, I, and I can't prove it, but it's very possible we exist out of conflict. There's no real evidence I've been able to find other than hearsay. So so, so whenever there's people, there's conflict, and that's the question James is asking. What is the source of this? What, what, what causes this? Notice his answer. Uh, now, you need to note here, uh, he looks at one issue— And he spends a chapter and a half answering this question. Okay? So, he doesn't answer it to the full in the rest of verse 1. He introduces the first part of it in verse 1. The first part of the passage. The answer he ultimately gives is pride. The reason there is conflict is pride. Therefore, where there is mutual humility, there is peace and unity. Where there is pride, there is conflict. Now notice the first way this demonstrates itself is through passions. Unquenched, uncontrolled passions. So, there it is. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. Notice that that where you are inwardly affects you outwardly. It's like Jesus saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the, your, your words reflect an inner reality that are demonstrated on, on, on the outward life. So you have passions within you that are at war within you. And at some point, it's going to come out without self-control, without humility, because humility produces self-control. Then those passions are going to drive you that will, be, uh, that will lead you to, to conflict. Notice he says, verse 2, you desire, and you do not have. You see it there? Now, is there wrong with desire? No. Uh, when when uh, uh, man who got pregnant on the first one, I thought, I desire to be able to feed the kid, right? I mean, that's a good desire. I recommend that, men, <laughs> to feed your family. That's a good desire. But that desire from passions within you can take something that is good and turn, it, and, 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 and turn it into something that, that becomes a god, basically. So, you desire to not have, therefore you murder. Now, what he's not saying is, if you lack something, you're going to go grab a hammer and start swinging it in the streets. What he's saying is, is that if you don't address the passions, it will continue to get to the point of violence. If you don't believe me, walk outside, turn on your news, talk to somebody. We all do this. Have you noticed that the more enslaved we, we, we become to the sexual revolution, more violent we become as a nation? Have you ever noticed the connection between sex and violence? It's pretty obvious. For one, we use violence to, to satisfy uh, uh, ourselves sexually, right? With with assault and rape, all that—that's violence under the guise of sexual desire. But but if you study that, where uh, sexual libertinism is is the practice, violence goes through the roof. Where there is self-control, violence goes down. Right? This is this, 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 this way. Think about it. Um, if, 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 if someone were to commit adultery in a relationship, how's the, how's the victim going to respond there? Likely with violence. They're just associated with each other because it's the passions of, of love and everything else. So he says that you want something so much, nothing will stop you from getting it. That is uncontrolled passions within your heart. You covet, so this is parallelism, you you desire and don't have, that's called covetousness. It's the tenth commandment. You covet and cannot obtain. And when you can't obtain it because of incompetence, because of lack of resources, because of whatever, you you then will uh, cut corners to get it. You're trying to tear someone else down. If I can't have it, you can't have it either. Right. And so this is where malice and bitterness and envy and covetousness and in a word pride, passion-driven pride. I want. I have to have. That should be mine. This is what drives so much of our politics, isn't it? It's not fair. They have that. It's not fair that they have those opportunities. Not fair that that state's doing better. It's not fair that them and this. It's 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 this this very thing of covetousness. So you covet cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Notice this: you do not have because you do not ask. Why would you not ask? Don't think you need to. Prop. So, James is saying, as you'll see here, the things you should ask for, which is an act of humility, you refuse to because you think you're entitled or are personally capable of getting it yourself. So, you don't ask. Then notice where he goes. Verse 3. You ask and do not receive. So so you don't ask for the things you should ask. You ask for the things you shouldn't ask for. In fact, that's what James says. Because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. How many of us have prayed a prayer, God do this and I will blank? We try to bargain with God. How many times, if God does those things, do we live up to our end of the bargain? Very rarely. Very rarely. We hear these testimonies all the time. That's not how saving faith happens anyways. But nevertheless, um, verse 4, notice, you adulterous people. It's interesting, isn't it? He uses the language of adultery to describe conflict. And In the biblical narrative, that makes sense. Those, those, those two ideas go together. Do you not know, this is verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see what he said there? That the prideful man is a friend of the world. The humble man is a friend of God. And you cannot have a foot in one and the other. To be driven by passion-filled pride and be a humble man after God's own heart. You can't do it. So either we war against our passions and an act of self-control, spirit-led self-control. Or we, we war against righteousness. And that will always lead to conflict. People who surrender the gospel and godly living will live lives of conflict. And this should be obvious to us all. Obvious to us all. We see this across the board in our nation. People who choose godlessness will live a life of drama, chaos, and and brokenness. And in every situation, we could say there is a simple solution to this. Stop it. Stop it. Choose a better way. But because we're driven by our passions and our lust and our desires and our demands, we're okay with conflict because we think that is how you get these things. The Christian should come and say, look, if you surrender all of that, you'll find what it is you are actually looking for. That's the beauty of the gospel. So he goes on. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud. Here's the root. It isn't passion that's the fruit of it. It's pride. So when you allow your pride to demonstrate itself in the pursuit of passions, desires that are ungodly, then you're going to get all these sort of conflicts and stuff. So God opposes the but gives grace to the humble. That's ultimately what our desires are. We demand, we fight, we seek because we want peace. We want love, we want contentment, we want rest. We can't find them. Why? Because we're choosing for ourselves conflict rather than choosing in Christ's peace. Verse 7, here it is. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, some of y'all come from fire and brimstone churches, right? Did you grow up in one of those, you know, sort of... Well, I, I served in um, a semi-woman, to be fair, and, uh, uh, as a youth pastor. And this passage always bothered me. Verse 7 always bothered me. Can I tell you how it was preached? Okay. They're across the board, the whole church. Okay, So I'm not picking on my pastor who I love. And by the way, pray for him. He's um, not doing too good. Um, I think my home church did this too. you stand up you you preach this passage, you'd say, see there it says right there in your text, you tell me if I'm wrong. It says... Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Do you see that? It's what your text says, isn't it? Do you want to disagree with me on that? It says resist the devil flee from you. So a good fire and brimstone preacher will really pound that pulpit. What's wrong with this country? We ain't resist the devil. What's wrong with this church? Not enough you. Resist the devil. If you just resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Right there in God's word. Right? You can just really build that up, can't you? You want to tell me the problem with that interpretation? The next verse. The next is, is is big. What about uh, the four words before it in the same verse? Submit. Therefore, God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. <laughs> in your submission to God, which is an act of humility, you will then resist the devil. So, so here's the way we've often interpreted this in our fire and brimstone you know, country style is, is to take the passage which opposes pride— and then arrogantly say, I have the power to resist the devil. <laughs> We've contradicted the passage. We've done everything James told us not to do. The point isn't, you can resist the devil. The point is, you can't resist the devil. Unless you first submit to God. Which is itself an act of Humility. I mean, it's amazing that we read it. I mean, I always just thought, like, that's about the whole verse. And then Donna's right. Go down to verse, verse 8, uh, or the rest of verse 7. Um, yeah, verse 8, sorry. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Notice that's the language of intimacy. Intimacy. Isn't this how intimacy works in relationship? It's both and. Right? You, you both have to humbly uh, love each other. Every relationship is like this you put the other ahead of yourself. If you would draw near to God with submission and humility, he will draw near to you. What does that look like practically according to James? We'll read the rest of verse 8. Right, It's a very practical book. Right, He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. So what does it mean to draw near to God? It means to humbly repent of your sins, be drawn into his righteousness, and seek his will and his way. And together in our relationships, that is what we are seeking above all things. The glory of God in our relationships. Therefore, that will end conflict. That's it. Because pride says, I'm the deity of this relationship. You exist for my good. You exist for my happiness. You exist for me, my boss, my co-workers, my spouse, my children, my extended family, my my church members, all that sort of stuff. Pride says, you're here for me. Humility says, I'm here for you. And together, when we are involved in this dance of humility, out goes conflict. Because I'm not interested in what is in for me, I'm interested in what is in for you. And then when they have the same attitude, we receive blessings without demanding entitlements. So purify your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hearts. Weep. Mourn. Let your laughter turn to mourning. Because when we address the heart issue, pride, and our passion-driven pride, then comes the resolution of conflict. Every bit of conflict, this is the root problem, it's pride. Every single bit of it. Every single bit of it. Um, Notice verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another. Now, Paul's there. Do not just read over that. If we tried this as a country, (laughs) how great would social media be? It would be overrun with grandkid pictures and, and, you know, the good stuff. You know, look, I was in the attic looking at old photos. Bam! Right? One of my old teachers Mark, right? uh posted an old, a reposted an old photo from one of the dances. He was my middle school science teacher's now at TFCA. Uh, you, you know Mark, oh, right next to you. Right? He's your neighbor. Is he really? Uh, Kentucky, right? It <laughs> just explains it all, right, there. Um But it was from, from from when I was in middle school, and I knew everyone in that picture. And I was like, please don't let me be in there, right? <laughs> please, because I don't know, you know. And and that, we love those old pictures, but what do we turn social media into? Exactly what we've turned our lives into. Uh, a place to complain and whine and speak evil of each other. What if we all, as human beings, simply practice, do not speak evil against one another? <laughs> so simple, right? You do not need a degree to figure that out. If you speak evil about someone or against someone, um, do not act surprised when they return the favor. This is, this is the way sin works. Yeah, Donald? What about speaking evil against yourself? Don't do that either. If you have the righteousness of Christ, see as <coughs> Christ sees you in repentance. Imputation. Dr. Imputation just taught my uh, home school students that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He said, that's what the devil wants is the lies and accusation. Is, I'm stupid, fat, ugly, no one can love me. And here comes Christ says, I've I bled for you. What do you mean? I mean that's the, stop speaking evil. Period. Just, just stop it. Go on down to verse uh, 12. Or rather, uh, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, right, these are Christians speaking this to each other. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil, against the law, and judges the law. This is Don's point, is that if you believe Christ, you will not do this against yourself or, or others. They are made in the image of God, and Christ offers his blood to them. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Right, that's the issue, is again pride. We speak evil against each other. So, passion-driven uh, of pride leads to conflict a sense of superiority by which we stand over someone in, in, in discrimination, judgment bigotry, whatever, is itself driven by pride pride is the issue here he seems to bounce around but the uniting issue is that of pride go down to verse 13 come now who, who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit you do not know what tomorrow will bring what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. Clearly the issue is pride, right? All such boasting is evil. Pride is the issue here. Now notice, notice what he said there. The problem is with pride is you think too much of the future that you act like it's already the present. This is criticism, right? We're, we're going to come back to this. Yeah, we'll come back to it. So he says you think too much of the future as if it is your, your present. That is it. You can control this. Tomorrow we're going to make X amount of sales, and then we're going to expand the business, or uh, we're going to roll the kids in the hollow, or I'm going to finish my degree, and I'm going to start a business and do this. Yeah. Or build bigger parts. Yeah, yes, yes, Yes. right. Yeah, you fool today. Um, Judgment is, is upon yeah, you. Yeah, go and build bigger barns. You you, And what James encourages us to say is, if the Lord wills, now he's not being critical of planning for your future. You should probably do that, right? So if, if, if you're going to get married, you should probably plan a wedding, right? <laughs> that makes sense, right? So I think it's about being wise and to make plans. The, the issue is, You see your plans are a foregone conclusion, as if you are the Lord over your future, and over the future in general. And that is rooted in pride. And what you'll find is that ambition, that ends, you will will do anything in order to get to to the ends. So what you'll say is the means will justify the ends. I'm going to make these sales. I'm going to have this sort of family. I'm going to do this or that. What you'll do then in your arrogance is you will miss your actual present and the people around you. And that will drive you more than righteousness here and now. And James's point is, you have no idea what the next ten minutes is going to look like. How many of us made some wild plans in late March of 2020? That was foolish, wasn't it? How many of us banked our retirement in 2020 and all of a sudden it just tanked? How many people woke up on a beautiful Tuesday morning on September 11, 2001? That was a normal day. That country came to a halt. We don't know the future. Now that's scary to us, but it should draw us towards faith because we may not know the future, but, but God does. And God is the sovereign one, and if we will humbly submit to Him, we will trust Him with our plans. But be flexible with his will. It may not be God's will for you to finish that grief. It may not be God's will for you to have uh, uh, ten kids. right? It may not be God's will for us to accomplish this or that. It may not be God's will. That's okay. So this is why we say, if the Lord will, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Because that is itself an act of humility. Now remember that. He's critical of them for thinking too much of the future as if it is their presence. What he does in chapter 5 is he's critical of them not thinking enough about the future and too much about the present. He flips it on us. If you just read the Bible, I think you'll be amazed at how well it is written. As as you've heard me say a thousand times before, it's almost like God wrote it. So start chapter 5, right? This is the strongest language James has across the board. This is actually what I taught on today at the Capitol. Come now, you rich. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's I say It ain't going to be good. <laughs> weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now remember, he just told us to weep and mourn. So again, do not read this as those rich people over there. He's not talking about those rich people. He's speaking to the church. And he just told all of us generically to say... So make yourself th- therefore to God, resist it up, flee from you. Draw near to God. What does that mean? Cleanse your hands, turn your laughter in the morning. And he speaks specifically here to those in the church who are wealthy and have used that wealth as a means of propping themselves up at the cost of other people. Now the problem was before is we thought too much of the future that we thought it was in the present. Now what he's saying is you're not thinking about the future at all. So notice what he does. Verse two: Your riches have rotted. Notice that now, now it's 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 in the present. That's the imperfect actually. And your garments are moth-eaten. Now they would say, "No, it's not. I'm rich. And if they are, just I just go go uh, somewhere and buy me some more." Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh. You see how he's mixing the, the past, present, and and the future. The prophetic voice in the Bible speaks of the future in the presence. This makes the reading the prophets really confusing. Because we know like, they're speaking of a judgment to come, but they're acting like it's already here. And that is the prophet's way of saying this is so certain, it's as if it's already happened. Judgment has fallen on the house of Israel. It may not be for 50 years, or in Habakkuk's case, 70. But is certain nonetheless. And James borrows that sort of language. He's speaking of coming judgment upon the wealthy here. But he speaks of it in the present. He says, your problem is you're so focused on your wealth, your clothes, your your coins, all that sort of stuff, that you're not thinking enough about the future. Right? And he says that what the future awaits you, apart from your repentance, in verse 1 of chapter 5, is judgments. It's very strong language. So at the end of chapter 4, the pride is you think too much of the future because you think you can control it. Now in chapter 5 is you're not thinking about what's coming enough. What's coming is judgments. So he goes on, uh, verse, uh, at the end of verse, verse 3, You have laid up treasure in the last day. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, notice the, the real application here is you have people working for you. They are doing menial jobs. And the application here is just multiple. Do it, they're doing menial jobs, and you are withheld from them um, uh, a, a worker worthy of his wages. You are profiting off of their labor. Rather they should profit off of their labor. So you withhold the what you should give them out of fraud, you work the system, whatnot, and 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 then you you profit off of that. Now this is an indictment of slavery, isn't it? Slavery is to profit off the labor of someone else at at, at, at zero cost to you, essentially. Let's get political. This is one of my Criticisms of how we speak of immigration on both the right and the left. Both sides have said, we need immigrants to do jobs Americans won't do. I want you to think about what we just said there. You want to talk about a racist statement? Mm -hmm. It's that. It's that. Because what you said is, they are below me. And. We need their labor to keep the cost of products down. We're doing it in China right now. Your lithium batteries, many of them are through child labor, forced labor. So I know we're complaining about inflation, but a lot of our products are in violation of this passage right here. Who's the rich in the world right now? We're so wealthy driven by our passions, we have a 31 trillion dollar deficit. And because the whole world is dependent on our economy, we're not worried about it. Not at least not as much as we should be. I mean, really think about what, what, what James says here. What we do as Americans is we think the wealthy are those people without realizing God has been so good to you and I. Not one of us here is worried about paying our bills tomorrow. and We're living in luxury. No, I don't think there's the Bible has has laid out that wealth isn't good or bad. It's the heart. There are righteous, wealthy people, Abraham. There are unrighteous, wealthy people, Pharaoh. There are righteous, poor people, Jesus. There are unrighteous, poor people, right? The issue isn't wealth. It's, it's, it's the heart. So here he says there are people within the church, at least the way I read it, who are under the judgment of God because they have failed to humbly see God has blessed them to be a blessing. This year is generosity and justice. <clears throat> it's a really strong language that, that James has here. Let's move on. I'm probably in, in enough Another, trouble. One thing too that, uh, kind of a class thing. <clears throat> it's finally, my What is the source of conflict in your life? You don't treat people as image bearers. <laughs> it's so obvious, isn't it? What we've done with something like race is we've turned to a political issue. And, and that's, that's a real problem. So if you want to know what the source of conflict in our lives? We turn everything into politics. Politics has never to healed anything. violence. What's that? It goes back to violence. Yeah. Like people don't want people using their bathrooms. Yeah. Yeah, violence. Yeah. I mean, every poor person you see walking down the streets of Thief, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a way. way. Don't pick him up when he needs but he probably molest you. Mm-hmm. That's the right and the left using that language. That's, that's, that's the thing. If you're a Christian, I think you ought to be able to to perceive beyond partisan politics to see some of this stuff. I mean, it's a problem with the right and, and the left. Well, we think we keepers. adulterous people. Alright, moving on. Um, uh, verse 7. Now remember the comment. Right, the whole thing is about pride. What is the source of conflict? The issues pride. Now, he just condemned the rich. Now notice that the jobs he mentions are people who harvest and people who mow. Now notice what he does in verse 7. Be patient therefore, which means this comes out of what he just said about the rich. Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. Now remember, at the end of chapter 4 you're thinking too much of the future comes to chapter 5 is the problem is you ain't thinking enough about the future, the ultimate future. And he looks at the rich and says, judgment is coming upon you. Enjoy while you can because there is not a U-Haul behind a verse. And what awaits you is judgment. And then he comes to, to, to those who are victims of, of that sort of system and way of life. And they say, he says, endure, be patient, for the Lord is coming. He says that if, if you spend all your time, he's going to make this a big point, if you spend all your time whining and complaining about how I wish things were different and how how it isn't fair, all this sort of stuff. What you're doing is what the rich have done. You are not looking into the future far enough because you don't really believe in God's justice. So he looks at those who are victims. He's not saying it's okay that they are victims. He's saying that the way you live your daily lives is you keep your eyes on Jesus who is coming back. So, therefore, again, verse 7... Be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about until he receives the early and the late rains. Now remember, he just mentioned the farmers, the harvesters and, and, the, and the yard mowers. So I, I, I think he, he brings them right back here. You're wrong with that. I think he brings them right back. Verse 8, you also, like those farmers, be patient. Think, you're patient when you're out in their fields for rains. You should be patient when it comes to the reign of Christ. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That is what changes everything. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now again, do not overlook verse 9. At the root of a complainer is a prideful person. <coughs> but we've convinced ourselves it's not that at all. But we've taught ourselves this person who complains is a victim. Mm-hmm. I want you to think about why do we complain. We want other people to see that we are justified in our anger and resentment. The complainer is a selfish person. They're always bothering their boss. They're always blabbering on Facebook about this or that. They're always complaining about everything. Always, always, always. Why? Because I'm not making enough money. My, nobody seems to like me. I want to why. This and that, complaining. Who is the center of their conversations? Not you, or their neighbor, or the friend, them. Come join me, the complainer says, in my misery, and together we'll be happy. So he, he, he looks at those who are victims of injustice. He says, do not grumble, for you've become like the oppressor who thinks the world revolves around you. You're better than this. Now, notice what he just said there: is there is temptation both the wealthy and the poor with unrighteousness, and we justify our actions as righteous because that's what the prideful heart does. We think it's all about me. It's, no, 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 no. Whether you're rich or you're poor, be generous, be kind, be patient. What lies at the source of all the conflict? It is pride. Complaining stirs. Chances are, before you go to bed, you'll scroll through your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tic Tac, whatever it might be, or you turn on the news. You'll see someone who's complaining about something, and you'll think, ha, ha, If they only knew, right? I had to walk up hill in ten inches of snow, barefooted, right? You know, to go to school hundred miles each and every day. You didn't hear me whine. You are now, right? I <laughs> mean, right? So, so we respond to complainers with complaining. We think we're the center of the universe and that disturs conflict. How many times maybe your spouse or someone you love, they come home, they've had a bad day and you think the way to fix their emotions is to remind them they can always have it worse. You think that was bad, let me tell you. About my day, honey. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this conversation was about you. Pride. All in the guise of righteousness. That's what pride does. Incredible, isn't it? What's the source of conflict? Remember this at our next business meeting. Um, so, um, verse 10 As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I trust you're familiar with the story there. It's interesting about Job is he loses everything except his wife, and it's his wife who wants him to commit suicide, right? It's tragic, and we are always critical of his wife. In a certain extent, that is justified. I don't think you should encourage people to commit suicide. Radical idea. However, put yourself in Job's wife's shoes. She has lost her children, her security, and now her husband. And the pressure upon her to serve her husband is immense because she is going through an emotional wreck all the while trying to help her husband who is a medical wreck on top of everything else. So I do think we need some sympathy towards her. Put yourself in her shoes. So you're going to lash out. You're going to say things that maybe later you'll regret. That's typical of human nature. But a lot of people think, well, why didn't God just take her? Ho, 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 which is a terrible thing to say. Can I answer that question for you? So over 40 chapters later, through Job's patience, to use James' language here, and endurance, through great suffering, Job learned to trust the Lord with his future. And in trusting with his future, he trusts God with his presence. And in the end, God doubles everything. His wealth, his family size, everything. In order to have children, what does Job need? A wife. God had already answered Job's prayers. God had already chose to bless Job before the Chaldeans slaughtered his family. He saved his wife. Knowing the future. So James points us to that story, a great story of suffering and injustice. It may require us to sit in an ash heap and pick out boils, right? But do so with patient endurance, for the Lord has come. Let's finish it out real quick. Verse 12 but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So he's dealing with two things. One is making oaths unwisely and then just lying in general. He's actually quoting here Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of James mirrors and parallels the Sermon on the Mount. That's neither here hear there. But this is an obvious example of that. Um, Jesus essentially says to break an oath or to lie is essentially demonic. Anyway, so uh, it's it's evil. Uh, Real quick, what sort of people lie? Why do we lie? Pride. Little Johnny, who is downstairs right now with with Susie, just enjoying himself. He's going to come in here. He's going to see that electric outlet. We're going to say, Johnny, do not touch that electric outlet. And we're going to go about our lives, and little Johnny's going to be looking at us. He's going to be looking at Electric Gallery, because he's four. He's going to be at us. He's going to look at Electric Gallery, right? And then for long, he's going to start to do this. He's like, Johnny, don't! And he'll do this. What? I wasn't touching it. I wasn't going to touch it. I don't know what you're talking about, Miss Smith. That wasn't me. No, no, you missed. Why does Johnny lie? Because he didn't want to get caught. He didn't want to get in trouble. And he wanted you to think better do you lie? Why do you mislead? It isn't because of humility. It's pride. We disguise it and we justify it all that we can. At at its root, you lie to protect yourself. Pride. Rather, let your yes be yes and your no no. That's the life of the humble servant. That will avoid a lot. Here it is. What's the source of it? It's pride. Driven by passion. Driven by self-confidence and ambition. Driven by injustice. Driven by grumbling, complaining, lying, and everything else. Choose the gospel and you'll find peace. Choose yourself and you'll find confidence in Alright, let's go Lord in prayer and uh, we'll be done. Kids want us to, to end. Alright, All let's pray. God, thank you for your love and your mercy. What, what